Hello, welcome back to our third season of Emory's Creativity Conversations podcast. This podcast takes excerpts from the live endowed speaker series, Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversations, and turns them into podcasts. I'm Maggie Becker, the host and producer of this podcast. I work for Arts at Emory, and I'm an Emory alum of theater studies and creative writing. We are recording this season's interviews over Skype to maintain COVID-19 social distancing precautions. Today, I'm joined by Stipe scholar and Emory student, Joel Hines, to introduce the Creativity Conversation between Tom Huck and Carlos Museum Curator of Works on Paper, Andy McKenzie. The point of these introductions are to provide an exciting way to continue the conversation on creativity. Joel and I will chat about Huck's thoughts, Joel's work, and creating in general. Joel, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hey, uh, as Maggie mentioned, uh, my name is Joel Hines. I am studying English and Creative Writing. First and foremost, I would say I'm a writer, but I also have been getting more and more into visual forms of art. I'm a graphic designer. I've been doing a lot of digital collage in these past few months where I've had a lot of downtime in quarantine, as well as sort of very basic, crudely drawn illustrations of random ideas that come into my head that like I can't find a space for in writing. So I'm sure this is kind of an interesting time for you because you are going into your last year of being a student at Emory and now you're probably spending first, if not second semester at home. Are you enjoying the ability to do these new creative pursuits? Do you think you would have picked them up if you were on campus? I think the interest was always there, but it's just now that I like have the time. When I thought that I was going back to campus uh, in the fall, I was planning on sort of having a, having a, a less time-consuming schedule, specifically to like pursue uh, creative projects that I might just like think of and be like, hey, I want to do this, hey, I want to do that. But I think quarantine really has accelerated all of that. I find that like if I concentrate on one writing project and it becomes like the sole thing that I'm working on creatively and you like sort of tie a lot of your self-worth into how well that's going, how poorly it's going. It can be very detrimental to how you feel just in your day-to-day life. So it's really nice to have a variety of different outlets, including some where like, I'm not a student of photography. I'm not a student of visual arts. So there's a lot less pressure um, in, in doing those. And it's really nice to have like different release valves. So you, as you said, are not necessarily like a student of visual arts, even though you have pursuits that you do for yourself. Why did you pick the Tom Huck conversation? I think I picked Tom Huck just because I very know very little about woodcutting. I know next to nothing. Um, and I think it's helpful just to get like a complete opposite perspective, like one that you are basically never exposed to, in this case, in the form of woodcutting. I don't know. I feel like there are so many creativity conversations that uh, you might as well just like pick one and listen to it and see what, um, what you can glean from it. Like yourself, Emory students and Emory artists have so many things under their belt that they like to try at least or turning into a pursuit. Do you think he'll ever try woodcutting? Okay, the thing I like the most about what Tom Puck said, and I think the thing that would draw me the most to woodcutting is when he talked about how much of a struggle woodcutting is, like the literal cutting of the wood, like cutting into the grain, how that struggle is sort of like the expression. Because like, you know, in, in writing, that struggle is less visible. It's less like, it's less physical. Like unless you're like writing with a typewriter and you're like hitting certain letters really hard to make them like stand out in your writing and you like, you're writing in really like jagged, angry letters. You know, I think like typing, like you lose a lot of that like physical battle. I want to feel like somewhat violent when I'm doing art. And I think that uh, that wood cutting like taps into that at its core. Like you have a knife and you have a block of wood and you have a bunch of repressed anger and you can really just go to town. So I think, yeah, if, if somebody gave me a block of wood and a wood carver's knife, I think I would avail myself of it most readily. <laughs> 
so you talk about that you kind of want there to be some sort of violent struggle in your creative process. What is your creative process when you like sit down to write or make something? Oh boy. Um, so this is like what I'm currently working on. The main project I'm working on is my thesis for creative writing, which is a cycle of short stories looking to be about eight stories. And it's really daunting because this is like the largest project I've ever worked on. When, I, when I'm normally writing like just a short story or like doing a piece of a visual art, uh, it's usually a very like extemporaneous thing. Like I'll just try to like go with the flow, go where my impulses take me. But for this like larger project, it's been it's been a challenge. It's like it's been quite challenging having to be like sequestered to the planning phase for so long and not really being able to fully like channel artistic impulses and like sort of be stuck in the planning. So it's really hard. It's like this huge task and like you try it from one angle, you try planning this certain thing from one angle, then you go to another angle because that angle isn't working. I know you as a student. It feels weird to me because I'm about to be like 25, but I went to college with you. We crossed paths for a short period of time. And so I know you actually, while you are a creative writer, spent a lot of time in theater. So (laughs) So what's the appeal to you about eight short stories versus like a play? I started doing theater uh, in college. Um, And so I think on the whole, I'm just so much less familiar with theater and its conventions that I am with like short stories with prose fiction, which is why I don't know, I feel like I could have gone with a play, but I think I would have had even more like self-doubt, like even more second guessing, like whether I even know enough about like the principles of this medium to really make something that's worth reading or worth watching on a stage. I think a lot of the things that I like to do like tonally or like humor wise come out more in like in prose fiction. I was also considering like doing something along the lines of like screenwriting, but ultimately I decided on prose fiction because I think that is, I think the art form that I like have the most intimate knowledge of that I feel like the most fluent in, even though I, there's still a bunch of, of learning to do. You talk about this kind of insecurity of creating, and I think a lot of artists have that. So that's nothing that's like unusual or wrong. Do you think that anything has kind of changed in your process throughout the years at Emory that might give give you more confidence in your creative process or do you think you're still a little lost still a little wandering I would say that I'm always lost and I'm always wandering but I do think I have somewhat grown in my confidence in my freshman year of college my introduction to fiction workshop I was just like hey I want to write something that's funny I want to write something that's amusing just to really have that be my single goal but now I'm like all right I would like to write something that's amusing but I also need to start with like characters and themes and all that stuff every day I'm getting closer and every day I look back on where I was a week ago and be like hey that guy sucks I'm not him anymore more. I'm better. Because like during this creative process for this thesis, I've gone through so many like ideas for stories and so many like ideas for uh, like unifying concepts. Most of the stuff I had then, I'm not using it anymore. But, like I also know where I am right now would not be possible without all of that, that chaff. So yeah, it's, it's like it's like very destructive and it's very humiliating. Looking back on what you're doing a month ago and being like, hey, that sucks. But it's also like, it's also something to, to, to be mindful of because whenever you're writing something and you're like, hey, this is bad, you will also know that in a week, you'll be like, hey, I know how to make that better. So yeah, so I'm always wandering, but the hope is that I'm wandering towards like, I don't know, a nice end or something. That's lovely. Joel, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and share your thoughts on your craft. To our listeners, please enjoy an edited down version of the conversation between Tom Huck and Carlos Museum curator of works on paper, Andy McKenzie. (laughs) 
Welcome, everyone. I think we're both very excited to be with you this afternoon. What I'd like to do just briefly is kind of talk about Huck and his work, his inspirations, and then we'll go on to the medium of woodcut. Then we'll look at some of the works that are in the show as well as some that are not. All the while, we'll be talking back and forth. So here's an image of Huck in his studio, right? Evil Prince in St. Louis. The woodcut that you see in the background is the central panel of Electric Baloney Land in the exhibition downstairs. I wanted to talk a little bit about the medium of woodcut. I'm sure many of you, probably most of you, are quite familiar with it. But I just wanted to get a sense from Huck about what it's like to actually carve. I've heard a quote from you before, and you said, the blank fights you. It doesn't <laughs> want to be carved. It, it doesn't want to be gouged. Could you it, talk a little bit hard. about that? It's hard to do. I use the fruit hardwood, mostly always cherry. And the woodcut is an inherently expressive art form. And by that I mean God or Martians or whatever didn't make trees for us to carve the four horsemen of the apocalypse out of. So when you, you're, you do your drawing on the block and then you carve out that drawing, it fights you. It's hard to do. And so what happens is that fight, the summary of that struggle to carve the image in there results in a really expressive image. And Dürer's prints are just as expressive as German Expressionist prints in their own way because the nature of woodcut is it's a rough and splintery line. It may look fluid on the whole, but individually each line is rougher than any other kind of print line that you may have. It's different than an etching line. It's different than an engraved line. There's wood grain that's always there in some way. I want to look at a couple of the woodcuts that are in the show downstairs. These are very small woodcuts. These are two of Durer's woodcuts from The Small Passion. It was a subject that he returned to over and over throughout his career. And I think that this idea of the wood sort of fighting you as you're trying to carve it is really reflected in his work from the small passion to the large to the apocalypse, also the work of some of his compatriots. And by that, I mean that it lends itself to this kind of grotesque, very visceral imagery. So on the left, you see the deposition, Christ's descent from the cross. And though you can't see the face of Christ, if you look just to the right, you can see the hat. Do you see sort of a skull shape there? Indicating the idea of death without explicitly portraying the lifeless face. Likewise, the doubting Thomas or Christ appearing to his disciples on the right, this really incredibly just grotesque thrusting of the hand into the wound on Christ's side. And here we also have one other print from the exhibition on the left, crucifixion. And again, I think you can see this kind of garish, you know, wounds, blood flowing into chalices. And that's kind of what I wanted to get at with this idea of the wood itself giving the image its own personality. Does that yeah. make sense to you? Yeah, this, on this, this slide in mm. particular, there are yeah. two images on here that are two in my top ten <laughs> favorite prints of all time. The one on the far right is by, I'm blanking Ber out. Berkmeyer. <laughs> Berkmeyer, uh, that's right. And I love Berkmeyer. <laughs> Hans Berkmeyer, it's Two Lovers Surprised by Death. I mean, it's been titled different things. Mm -hmm. It's Lovers Surprised by Death. And the funny thing is, when I was a kid, I saw this image, and it's, I'm a big fan of like heavy metal music and dark and lurid subject matter and the album covers that go along with that. And, and that 
it's the angel of death, man. Mm -hmm. and, and there's this band called Slayer, and their most famous song is Angel of Death. And like if they did a seven-inch re-release on vinyl of that as a single, they could take that image and put it on there, and it'd be like, it was made today by an artist that they hired. You know, it's very, all this stuff is really contemporary. And in images like in the center panel, Which is Sabbath by Balding, it, uh, Balding Green, th there's just something about the setup of the space, the dark subject matter, the virtuosity in which they're cut that got me at a really young age, especially with Durer and the far left crucifixion. I actually you don't know this, a little <laughs> nugget for everyone here. And I sh you're going to want a picture of this, and I totally forgot about it until right now. My dad is a bluegrass musician, and he has, has a bunch of fiddles. And when I was 13, he stripped down the back of one of his fiddles, and I drew that crucifixion on the back of the fiddle. And he Are had a, he, I'm sorry, <laughs> he had a guy come in and polish it over and re, so I'm, that crucifixion's on my dad's number one violin on wow. the back of it. When I was like 13 or 14 or something, I did that. So there's three like huge prints to me in this one slide. I was just very influenced by this kind of work very early on. And both of these, I didn't realize that Witches Sabbath and Two Lovers Surprised by Death, same year. Of course, both chiaroscuro woodcuts, but I had no idea they were created in the same year. I love, and we'll see this in Hawk's work too, the, the flowing of the smoke and the way it directs your eye around the print. I think that that's something that Huck has really responded to, and we'll see that going on, going forward in his work. Wanted to very quickly look at Durer's Rhinoceros and Huck's Great Warmadillo, a chiaroscuro woodcut that was created as, as a tribute, right? Yeah, I did this as a tribute to Durer, but also there's a, a sort of parallel with immigration today. I live in St near St. Louis, Missouri. My shop's in downtown St. Louis. And we folks in Missouri, we didn't have armadillos until 10 years ago. And because of climate change and whatever, they're making their way further north. You know, the only time we see these amazing creatures are dead on the side of the highway. And I see some parallel with, you know, the, the armadillos are just trying to come north. They're just trying to come to a better life. And so I saw that kind of a parallel there, and so I used it as a metaphor for the situation with immigration now. I think they're posthumous impressions of the rhinoceros that were done with a color block. Mm -hmm. In, in mm -hmm. Durer's day, it was released and published as a black and white print, but someone came along later and added a blue color. And I really like the blue color mm -hmm. that's there as well. It's a chiaroscuro cut, which the large-scale woodcut in the gallery downstairs is Electric Baloney Land. Could you just also give a little bit of an explanation for what a chiaroscuro woodcut is? It's a two-block print. So you have a highlight. You choose a color that's a value all over the is a background in, uh, color. And then you carve the highlights out on that block. You print all of those in, in color. And then you take the key block, which is the black and white block, and you print it over the top of those colors. So you get a, three, a more three-dimensional effect. It's a, a Witch's Sabbath and Lover's Surprised by Death in the previous slides were chiaroscuro cuts. It's a really old-fashioned pictorial effect print. And that's my favorite, okay, it's my favorite print of all time, the rhinoceros. I was going to ask you that. That's my favorite one. It goes back and forth between Night, Death, and the Devil by Durer mm. and the rhinoceros. And I think the thing about the rhinoceros, it has a presence to it. He's cute and cuddly. 
And it's done from Dewar's imagination. Dewar never saw a rhinoceros. The rhinoceros in, that's depicted here was supposed to be a gift to the emperor, Maximilian. Maximilian. And it was in a ship. <laughs> And the ship sunk and the rhinoceros drowned off the coast of Spain or something. Obviously, news traveled slower. There was no CNN, you know, or Google News. And so Dewar got word of this and wanted, was really looking forward to seeing it in real life because he was close to the emperor mm. and decided to just do his version based on written description of a rhinoceros. But, I mean, how good is that? That is amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. And so there's that story, and then this was an extremely popular print mm. in its day when it was released because it's of the exotic. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big fan as well as the prints that are about, you know, monsters, from uh, curious monsters and fanciful beasts mm -hmm. where people thought the earth was flat, which, oddly enough, it's just like modern days now, uh, people thought the earth was flat, and, then, and when you fell off the edge, what was there? And it was all these crazy monsters. So mm -hmm. I love that stuff, and I have some of my monster prints here. The little, little affordables that I do are all based on creatures from the end of the world, basically apocalyptic monsters. I, I didn't realize. Because Durer, he loved the quote-unquote exotic. He loved newly discovered peoples and places and animals and plants. The rhinoceros is but one. One of his most well-known quotes from his diary after visiting the Netherlands, he came across a collection of things that Cortez had brought back from the New World. And it was uh, Motekusoma's headdress. And it was feather work. And it was these beautiful, beautiful objects, gold, silver. And he said, you know, this is better than the prodigy. So this is something that he was really, really interested in, like this artwork, much better than those of his contemporaries. I didn't realize that you had that monsters on the marginalia, medieval manuscript kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah. It's very contemporary. And also to a 13-year-old kid that likes knights, deaths, <laughs> death and devils and apocalyptic imagery and dragons and all Let's not, a 13-year-old boy is going to love the work of Dewar. <laughs> I mean, it's all very hardcore, cool stuff and subject matter. I mean, the plague, the plague years, I believe, man, I would have killed it in the plague <laughs> years. I would have just totally cleaned house in the plague years. I mean, but uh, it was good for some art, that's for sure. That dark humor, I guess, is one of the only ways to deal with such a thing. Right. On that note, well, oh, sure, Frank. Yeah, a chiaroscuro block is, okay, the way that it's done is I'll carve a block, the image, in black and white. Carve a block in black and white, and then you do a print off of that. And you'll have a blank block the same exact size. And you take that wet print, and you lay it down on the blank block. You run it through a press. It transfers the wet image onto the block. And then I'm looking at that, and I say, okay, in this, in the, the transferred image block, I'm like, okay, there'll be a highlight here a highlight there, a highlight there. I carve those out. Then we print it in a color. Then you take the black block and you print it over the top of it. So you have two colors. And it's a visual trick that's early Renaissance, basically. I think, or just high Renaissance, whatever. That time period was this dimensional printmaking mm. that they did. Is it a reverse image? They're both reverse. So yeah. everything you do, you draw backwards? I draw it all backwards. <laughs> you draw it backwards. I can write sentences and I can write all backwards. It's just, I've been training myself to do that for, I've trained myself to do it for 20 years. It's just a, like a thing. 
That's a really, really hard thing to imagine for those of us who aren't good printmakers at all, how you conceive of a composition in reverse. Now, Huck told me a couple days ago, it doesn't matter as long as you create a balanced composition. It doesn't matter what happens. It's always going to look good when it's reversed. But that just, my mind does not work that way. I, I use can't. a Da Vinci, about to say, I use a Da Vinci code <laughs> in, my, in my picture making. But I do. I use either a square with a cross in it, a square with a circle with a triangle in it, or a triangle with a cross through it in a circle, or a square with an X with a circle with a triangle. That's how I set up my picture space. I'm always thinking of that. And I've studied these people for 20, since I was like actually 30 years since I was a teenager, and I've read and read and read and read. And great picture makers study other great picture makers. That's the way it works. And great picture makers rip off other great picture makers. <laughs> Old printmakers ripped each other off. One of my, I mean, I love Leonardo da Vinci, greatest painter of all time and he knew how to set up space really well. Dewar knew how to set up space really well, better than really well. They're masters at it. Michelangelo's the same. But I also like the German Expressionists, and I like Picasso. I like all great picture making is balanced. That's what's so great about your work, too, is that you can see these inspirations. You can see the knowledge of the history of art that you have. That's one of my favorite things about your work, is just how you can see these things blended in. So these two prints are both in the show downstairs from Huck's first sort of widely acclaimed, I would say, series, Two Weeks in August, 14 Rural Absurdities. I love both of these two prints. Um, when, when you mentioned just a few minutes ago about making art as a sort of as a method of survival, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the subject matter of these prints. I know that they're derived as much of your work is from your hometown of Potosi, Missouri. It's a tiny, tiny town. As of the last census, I think it was 2,600 people total population. 15,000 if you count the prison. There. If you count the prison. <laughs> And so, as a burgeoning artist trying to make images, what, what was, was that like? Um, I grew and how up it in, influenced it? I grew up in Potosi, Missouri. It's a dead American town. It's unfortunate. It's very sad. Now, you go to downtown Potosi, there's nothing but payday loan places. And, you know, that's all it is. It used to be Brown Shoe Company used to be there and Purcell Tire. They've both left. This is the way it is now, and it's extremely sad. However... Not to defend some that too much, there are crazy things that go on in secluded places like that, okay? And it doesn't have anything to do with the economics, okay? It's just there's some like cabin fever that goes on in rural America that's a little bit different than what goes on in New York City. I always saw hum the humor in it. Early on, I based this whole set of prints called Two Weeks in August on events that happened in my hometown that I had heard about, that I had witnessed, or that was told to me by my dad, who's the town doctor. He hears all the stories. So I had all these images in my head for years, and when it came time to make art that was mature and about me and honest, I chose to go and make work about where I'm from because it's me. So these stories just came out over this three-year period, and there was a little bit of trouble. Whenever I, I got a little well-known for it, it was in the paper in St. Louis. There was a show at the museum in St. Louis right away. And they did big interviews with me, and the people, that some of these people were still alive. They had families there, and somebody threw a water bottle at my sister. 
you know, going to the florist one day, you know, I heard about this happening. It was the curator of Prince called me in the middle of the night before the show was going up, Francesca. Oh, Consagra, yeah, I was about to read Who's quote, this yeah. amazing, was this amazing, she passed away this year. She was this amazing print curator, one of the first that saw anything in my work. She called me in the middle of the night. She was like, Tom, these Southeast Missourians, do they really like to burn buildings down? <laughs> Because, you know, I named names in this interview I gave, and she was worried that they, there was going to be the mob outside with, and I was thinking, this is great, you know. And she was very scared, but they didn't know nothing happened, you know. Everything smoothed over, and then the work got a lot of attention. And I've moved on from the hillbillies doing crazy stuff to, like, the, there's still hillbillies in there doing things. It's just they tend to follow a certain political agenda these days and I want to make as much fun of everybody as I possibly can. It's more steeped in metaphor and allegory and a broader based social commentary and criticism than 20 years ago. Well I still think that that's there. I know you it, always I, say that. I yeah. have said this three times. It's it, still there. It is and, still there. <laughs> yeah, there's some hill <laughs> There is. So one of, one of the things that I've pointed out every time I talk about the print on the left, Kohler City Revisited. It's just the kind of, the way the composition's built, it's very similar to the way Durer built his compositions, either on a pretty hard diagonal or in an S shape in order to lead your eye around the print. And this is done brilliantly in both of these prints. I love Kohler City Revisited because it takes this very strange form of dentures and builds an entire image around that and you move through the image based on dentures, piles of dentures. The tone is created that way. Does anybody want to know why? Oh, yeah. So, well, here's, here's some piles of dentures. I'll tell you why. Oh, yeah. We'll get so that. I was five, six years old. My mom went to this rummage store, like a, like a thrift store. This is probably 1976, 77. She took me to this thrift store called Kohler City, and they had great, like, used toys, used clothes. They had canned goods, but jar canned goods. And they sold barrels of used dentures. And I remember seeing uh, this old guy, like, go up to the pile, and I'm like five, and I'm like, that guy's messed up, you know. And he gets up there, and he's like, you know, and he takes the teeth, and he tries them on, he's like, yeah, and he puts them back in the pile. And nobody believed me. For years and years and years and years, even after I did this print, and it's been in museums, and it's been sold all over the world and everything, no one believed me. And then there's a book called Weird Missouri that came out. And they did a feature on Kohler City in there. And I was like, see, I told you. And people are like, what? Somebody tagged me online in it. It's true, you know. And then I was like, and then I sold the print out. That print sell, sat, like I had 10 of them left, and over like a year they finally sold. After the book came out? After the Weird Missouri book came out. That's a long time ago now. That's probably 10, 12 years ago that that mm. book came out. It happens, man. <laughs> Weird stuff happens everywhere. Everywhere I go, I'll see something. I just, I love this print so much because of the story that I have read that Tom has told us today. Because it gives you an idea of, of a child that's kind of fascinated, but also repulsed sort of experience, you know, you're, you're seeing something that's very grotesque, but yet you're also drawn to it in some way that it comes back out. I get a um, lot of flack. Form. I still get a lot of flack that I depict this stuff. 
I'm kind of, the way I've come to defend it is I, if don't do bad shit and you won't end up in my shit. <laughs> don't misbehave and I won't make a print about you. <laughs> And so, you know, I, for a while, like when I would go back to Potosi, I'd go to like Casey's general store to get like a Coke or something, and they'd know who I am. And then I'd go up there and they'd be like, here is your Coke, Mr. Huck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or that will be, they're real like, don't do anything weird, you know. <laughs> I'm, in that way, I'm like Hogarth. I'm not a moralist, but I'm like, I want to hold a mirror up to society and say, look at how screwed up we are. Yeah, and... The curator that he mentioned earlier, Francesca Consagra, she had such a great quote that I read. Uh, it was about her having acquired two weeks in August, and she was about to display it. She starts worrying because it's I have depicting never heard people in the area. Well, here, I'll read it to you. We had to consider the fact that most of the people depicted in the work live in the area and that some might take offense at his characterizations. I felt as if I was a curator in London during the 1730s ready to display Hogarth's work to the public. <laughs> I loved that That's quote. awesome. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> How long does it take for you to space all those little cuts? The one in the studio, in the gallery downstairs, uh, Electric Land took four years. That's every day. Oh. I carve every day about seven or eight hours a day. Before we go to the next slide, just real quick, have a look at these sort of smoke cloud forms up here and remember, you know, the smoke and that really fabulous fall dung, which is Sabbath print. Again, that crazy hard diagonal that leads you around the whole print. It comes up consistently in Huck's work, the way he builds his compositions, totally influenced by the old masters. Here we have another print that's in the exhibition from the Bloody Bucket series, which was a later series done about Seven, eight years later? Uh, it was done 2000 to 2005. Okay, so we're looking at about close to a decade later then. No. no? God, I've lost okay. track, <laughs> man. I've lost track of all this. Okay, so like five years later. Yeah. Okay. And it took, I don't know how long it took to do the bloody bucket. It took like, yeah, five years or something. Yeah, you, you told me 2001 yeah, to 2005. Yeah, something like so that. So we'll go with that. Yeah. You mentioned the other day when we were in the galleries that, Night, Death, and the Devil. That's an exact, yeah. because I'm into, like, I like equestrian prints, guys writing stuff, or witches writing goats, goats backwards. Because If you look in medieval prints, if you see a woman riding a goat backwards, that's a witch. And so I'm like, really? You did a really well-known print yeah, of the subject. Yeah, right. so cool. So it flips back and forth my number one favorite print of all time is either Night, Death, and the Devil by Dury Ertz Engraving, or the rhino, and I go back and forth. And I, it's usually when I see them in real life, the most recent is what I, oh, God, I saw this great night, Death and the Devil, at, the print, at print Week in New York, or a museum will have one somewhere that I see. But I love that, just the feel of it, and so I wanted to do writing something that symbolized something. <laughs> um, you know, what I came up with was the Jolly Guano Brothers ride again, and it was about these two brothers who robbed a bank with cow pelvises on their head as the mask. And so I heard this for years, and they escaped on a Schwinn bicycle, like <laughs> tandem. A sheriff just like caught up with them and was like, pow, and they just, you know, fell over into a ditch somewhere, and they arrested them. Well, I didn't believe, I believed the tale of the robbery. That's easily proven. I didn't believe the cow pelvis thing for years and it didn't really matter whether I believed it or not I was going to do a print about it but one day I was at a flea market or something a thrift store and they had some bones that people people put these things in their gardens in Missouri okay 
And so I found there was a cow pelvis, and I, I was like, oh. And so I took it to the studio, and it sat around for a few days, and I was like, there's nobody here. I'm going <laughs> to try this out. And so I took it, and it, your head fits exactly perfectly through the birthing canal, and then the hip socket holes line up with your eyes, and then if you want to be extra menacing, you flip it over, and then you put it on front of your face, and the eyes then are upwards evil looking, and you got horns. Like, it's true. Totally true. You can Google that with his name and see a picture of him Is wearing there it. Somebody then came back, oh, hey, look, it's real, and I put it on in my studio, and then, yeah, that picture's out there now. Yeah. It's yeah. totally true. It's like it opens up, and then you've got this weird, like, Vader kind of mask mm -hmm. on or something. Let's go to, um, this is Electric Baloney Land. In the show, you see it with its fourth panel that goes beneath the three, and it kind of shows you what's going on underwater. So this is Huck's first, and I'm, you said you were never going to work on this scale again. So I'm, I'm guessing, done, man. Okay. I'm not working this large again. It nearly killed me. Yeah, I was going to say it's his first and only then monumental chiaroscuro woodcut triptych. As Jen laughs at my wife's other, she laughs as I say that. She's like, you wuss. <laughs> you know, I can't do that big anymore, man. Mm. But the reason that I worked that large is because of Dewar. Because Dewar's prints in his day were, were big. Mm -hmm. Because up until that time, woodcuts were used to illustrate type. And they were like you'd have a virgin and child or an animal of some sort and they would just repeat that same image along with the type. It was a novelty thing. And when Dewar came along, he realized the potential of them being prints that you could distribute widely, but also the graphic quality needed to be what is called full sheet size. So they were huge, but he didn't have plywood. I have plywood. If Dewar would have had plywood, he'd have been working as large as I work now. So there's a size issue. He wanted to knock people on their ass with his imagery, that people, no one had seen anything like that before. And that's what I want to do. I want to just absolutely bowl people over with the size and the graphic quality and the technical quality of it and the narrative quality. And I want people to see something that they've never seen before. And people are usually familiar with prints, even though they don't know they are. A lot of people do a linoleum cut when they're in high mm -hmm. school or carve on the really soft cut, the rubber cut. People have done that. So when people see that, people know kind of what it is that size, it's really about being a graphic entertainer, too. So this triptych is based on, we're looking allegorically, <laughs> at what might happen at the traditional county fair, um, sort of exploring the what you see as the dissolution of the small town. And the loss of the right. American innocence. But also gun issues, violence issues in America, and the way that I sort of tied it in to what's contemporary, but this is also something from my childhood. So in 1982 or 83, I would go to the county fair. That was a big deal in Potosi. That was a big gathering thing where you go and you see the petting zoo and the, the, you ride the rides and you play games. Well, you could like, I've told this a hundred times this week, but okay. It, you could go play a carnival game, you know, and you throw, they give you a ring and you throw it around a unicorn head. You'd win a, a samurai sword. A real one. You could win a bullwhip. A real bullwhip. You could win a Rambo knife. A real one. This is real. Or the most popular were Chinese throwing stars. They weren't the plastic ones that you can get now at Walmart or wherever. They were the real thing. And you throw them and they poof, stick in the wall. Or your brother. 
<laughs> you know? So kids were going home in rural areas one time a year armed to the teeth. And you think about it now, it's just as easy or easier to get a hold of this stuff. So that was my connection to bringing it to now. When I came up with the idea for Electric Baloney Land, I, I sometimes have titles before I'll have image. And this title came from a couple of things that happened on a road trip to New Orleans where we were living off of bologna. We didn't have any money, as usual. We were living off bologna sandwiches, and then we stopped at this mega fireworks store called Boomland. Boomland, 20 miles. Boomland, see it, five miles. We're, like, we're going to Boomland. We don't have any money, but we're going to Boomland. And we go to Boomland, and it's a super Walmart of fireworks, and there's one guy working there. It's ridiculous. <laughs> so I saw that, and then we got really near New Orleans finally after 13 hours, eating tons of bologna sandwiches, having seen Boomland. And I'm thinking about all this stuff. And then we saw this glowing purple something in the, on the horizon. We're like, what is that? And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger as we got closer. And you're like, this is going to be amazing, whatever it is. And we came up on it. And it was like the biggest used car lot in the world, is what they said, Larry's Electric Car Land. And I was like, God, you know, what a letdown. But it looked really cool. And then finally, we're like two or three miles out of, out of New Orleans, and there was a classic rock radio station playing Jimi Hendrix's Electric Ladyland all the way through. So I had all that in my head, and it's like Electric Baloney Land. <laughs> and I had that title. And so I had the title. I sat on the title for about a year, and then I started drawing, and it just fit this. It fit this subject perfectly. That's how I do these things. I, I come up with them from my experiences and my thoughts about contemporary society and the downfall of it and my gripes and my complaints and my loves and my losses and all of that tied up into one just crazy-ass scenario. <laughs> you know. I've got the Domier Gargantua lithograph on the top right. This was what inspired, or one of the prints, that inspired the left-hand panel, and you see the French monarch Louis Philippe actually reversed from what we see in the um, in Electric Baloney Land. Instead, it's a conveyor belt that's bags of money are being taken from the lower classes and being eaten by the Louis Philippe, who was a pretty big guy. Sounds himself. familiar. <laughs> yeah, I, I and so I took that. I'm all in every print that I make. I'm always referencing art and print history in some way. I do that every single print. I'm ripping off or <laughs> thinking about somebody that came before me. And I tell this to people every single day that I go into the studio, I have to make prints that are as great as my heroes made. That's what I'm about. That's what I live my life for. Did my first print in college. I knew who Dewar was because I found his work when I was 13 years old. But it didn't hit me what a print was until I took a printmaking class And so in college. And so Every day, that's what I'm trying to go for. I want to be part of that history, and I want to make print history and uh, take it very seriously. It's like when I found all these great artists in printmaking, it was like finding members of my lost family. Ancestry.com, whatever. I had mine in uh, Jansen's art history, man. <laughs> you know, I had it all there. What we're looking at now uh, is the central panel of Electric Baloney Land, and then the print on the left is The Martyrdom of St. Catherine by Albert Durer, one of his early woodcuts. And this one, I was so pleased to find out that Pitts on campus 
had this print. It was a recent acquisition of theirs. This print directly inspired that central panel, right? It was just yeah. kind of fate. Her position, St. Catherine's position, mm -hmm. she's a martyr. Well, so is Lady Liberty. Her positioning of her arm, they're back to back, basically. That, I was thinking about that the whole time. The center panel is Lady Liberty. Lady Liberty's a mermaid. Mermaids are temptresses and seductive. So is Lady Liberty. But she's been caught at a noodling competition at the county fair. Does everyone know what noodling is? It's fishing with your bare hands. There's some reality TV show, Backwoods Noodling, or and all this. And I'm no, there, there really is that yes, show. Yes, yes. It may not be the title, but it should be. <laughs> you know, and, and so I've seen it, and it's hillbillies doing bad stuff. And so she, or good stuff, she uh, has been caught. In the fourth panel that runs under, underneath, it's called a predella in the most traditional sense of altarpieces, because all these are really altarpieces, my big triptychs. It's the fish. It's this gigantic monstrosity fish that's being sought after next, after her, her hands, the dog's head, and weaponry that's been shoved into the ground to get the fish. And on either side, it says, one in a million, she's a beauty. That's a direct response. Well, it's, I don't know who gets it, <laughs> but this, the county fair I saw was in 1983, and so Lady Liberty, one in a million, she's a beauty, you better not take her for granted, she's one in a million girls, and that's like the Tubes, there's this band called the Tubes, they had this huge hit in 1983 with that, and it was one of my favorite songs growing up, it's still one of my favorite songs, it's great, it sounds good now, I'm always looking for a way to get the year 1983 in my work. It was a big year for me. And if you look at the top of the shooting gallery called Assassination Station, but we changed the title here to The Troublemakers just because. And so up top, it says shoot 'em up heads of state. The shoot 'em up lettering is Def Leppard's font. And so Pyromania came out in 1983. It's the first record that I bought with my own money. And so it fit perfect, like, you know, because there's a sign at the top of your carnival games that's garish and carnivalesque and so Def Leppard the whole thing and then there's the target that Pyromania was a, a gun target so shoot them up heads of state so it's all it all ties together neatly mm -hmm. well for my part I have to say that this is this will be the only time that I was ever able to write about noodling in a museum label you think that's the so. only time I you do. never know. What I was really proud of was the fact that I just knew what it was. I guess should I be proud of that? I don't know. But I, I hadn't talked with Huck about it, and I recognized the contest from my own experiences at county fairs. Did you have a high school or middle school art experience, and what was that like? <sighs> my middle school art experience was she was my, her name's Mickey Colbeck. She lives in Vermont now. She's awesome. She was a total hippie. She was so cool. And she let me do whatever I want in class. But she got pregnant by my math teacher, and they fired her and kept him. Welcome to rural America, okay? She was awesome. And then I got kicked out of high school art. I got kicked out of high school art because they stuck it. The first day, my parents were like, oh, thank God. There's going to be art club for Tommy. There's going to be some structure for him. Thank God. And so I went to art club the first day of school, and we were doing color wheels. Well, my sister, who was in second grade, was doing color wheels. And I was like, come on, man. I, go, I asked him, I go, Mr. Smith, are we going to do color wheels all? <laughs> and he was like, 
he got up and grabbed me by the ear, just like in the movies, and took me down the hall, and he sat me in the counselor's office. I was like, I don't want this huck boy in any of my classes the rest of this time here. So I had study hall for four years. However, my mom, my mom, so I come home, and she's like, how was art today, Tommy? I was like, I got kicked out of art, Mom. They're like, what? And they yelled at the school. The school wouldn't budge. So my mom, two days a week, drove me 30 minutes away and enrolled me in college classes at night. So I was getting, like, beginning drawing at the college level as a freshman in high school, and I did that. She drove me every night, like every two nights a week for three years. And I went in the summertime and I did full-time in the summer. And so when I got out of high school, I had 68 credits of college, and I skipped <laughs> my freshman year. So I had my MFA at 23, 22. I went straight through. It's rough being in a small town, but I'm so lucky. My mom... And my dad, they're all musicians and artists and everything. But my, my grandparents took me on a trip to Europe when I was um, 1984, when I was, you know, I was just ready to go. And they took me. I got to see all this great stuff at a very young age. I got to, that's where I saw Doors Apocalypse the first time. And then my parents took me to the National Gallery of Art like three weeks later after I got home from Europe. And guess what was up? Doors Apocalypse. I've been very lucky. It wasn't like there was this scene at dinner where they're like, what are you going to do now, Tom? <laughs> I'm going to be an artist. Oh, you have to be a doctor. You know, it was not that. It was like from the time I was three, he's going to be an artist. And that's everybody made sure I had what I needed. I'm very lucky. You're a practicing artist, a successful practicing artist. You have your own studio. You have your own press. We're really lucky now to have here today some of your apprentices, as you call them. Yeah, well, we call them crew members, but they're really apprentices. Mm -hmm. And so I have a thing at my shop where I like to help young artists because mm -hmm. I didn't have an evil prince. That's the name of my shop. I didn't have that to go into when I was out of grad school. I didn't have that. So it's kind of part of the responsibility that I have out there as a working artist. And we have their work here. So we do little print fairs from time to time. The whole idea behind prints is that they're affordable. They always have been for the common person, more affordable than anything else in the art world, really. And it's a really cool thing to have them here at this, as one of them said, this is a fancy place, Huck. I don't know. <laughs> you know, because we've shown everywhere. We've shown in bathrooms and rock clubs and now in museums too. So it was cool to be able to do an affordable print fair to sort of end this yeah. week because that's the spirit of how I got started and what it's about. So they all work at my shop for two years and then we kick them out and they go to grad school. They get into all the good grad schools now. So. <laughs> and the work is really incredible. Should we open it up for questions? Talk a little bit about the sort of equipment that you've had, the evil prints, what sort of presses, and who, if anyone still makes them? There are companies. Takish Press is the big company that makes all the presses for professional printmakers as well as schools that teach printmaking. There are different brands. There's French Tool, and then there's uh, there are a few companies that make the big equipment. I'm very happy to say this. Evil Prints, as of the last year, is a fully functional print shop. We can do everything. We can do etching. We can do lithography. We can do big woodcuts. I have a four foot by eight foot custom press with skulls and flames on it. And if the thing works right and the batteries are in, a skull on the a skull gear shift head on the crank that when you lower the pressure, the eyes blink red. It's really cool. 
I figured out a way to make a, a printmaking workshop combined with a tattoo shop combined with a 13-year-old's bedroom. <laughs> okay? But yeah, we're a, we do it all. We have these big presses, and they're a pain in the butt to move. So when you get one place, you stay there. And we're in downtown St. Louis. I can see that your mind works, you know, in a great way, but I'm wondering if there's any one particular place that you find, um, it seems like there's a lot of macabre and unusual things that come into your work, and I'm wondering if there's any part of the world that you, a location that you find inspiring that brings a lot of that out, aside from your, your head. <laughs> We're in St. Louis, man. <laughs> Visiting artists and people that come to see me, we tell them the joke, you got to bring a bulletproof vest. I live in a very violent city. But I don't think there's one place. I think that it's an accumulation of people and an accumulation of places and an accumulation of history that I have up here. And so one thing's always relating to another thing. And I think it's just, uh, it's in the air all the time. I don't know if I looked at things this way when I was a kid. I just have a real cynical, dark, humorous view of things. And this Electric Baloney Land was planned before all of the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm a political junkie. It drives Jen, my wife, crazy because that's all I want on all the time, 24-7. I'll flip back and forth to things, you know, and I'm just soaking in it all the time. And I even watch it when they start repeating stories. <laughs> you know, I'm like just hoping for some new bomb, 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 breaking news, you know. What, what's going on? You know, I'm all, I'm really bad about it. I've been that way since I was a kid, though. I'm a big fan of Watergate. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all the books on it, you know, all that, like, I would love to meet Woodward and Bernstein. That would be just like far out, you know. I, I love that movie. It's like my, one of my favorite movies, All the President's Men. And so now it's like, come on, come on, you know, let's do this again. I want to live it because I, I was alive, but I was like two or something. When it so I'm in my element right now. I'll just admit it to you. You know, I'm not literal with it in the work. So it's in the spirit, the spirit of it. Oh, I thought about doing this whole series of prints called Tom Huck's Easy Targets. <laughs> I thought about it. Maybe, maybe. I did a Michelle Bachman print poster. She's like on a serpent. It's on the Don't Tread on Me serpent, but it's her head. And I saw her on TV so many times, and she looks like a freaking snake. Like, you know, any moment, like, I'm watching, you think, oh, my God, she's going to bite me, <laughs> you know? And, so it was easy. Some things, they come real easy. And if Dalmier were alive, he would be doing the same thing. Hogarth. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creativity Conversations. This podcast was brought to you by Emory University and Arts at Emory. It was produced by Emma Yarbrough and me, Maggie Becker. For the full version of this conversation, you can find it on the Creativity Conversations YouTube playlist linked in the description of this episode. For more from Arts at Emory, be sure to follow us on Facebook at Arts at Emory and on Instagram at Emory Arts.